Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Tyron Cooper, a guitarist, vocalist, arranger, and music director with decades of experience recording and performing with artists like A Taste of Honey, Max Roach, Diana Ross, Bo Diddley, and Dionne Warwick. But his expertise in gospel and popular music extends beyond the stage and studio and into academia. He has a bachelor's degree in music education from Bethune-Cookman University, as well as a master's in jazz studies and a Ph.D. in ethnomusicology from Indiana University, where he's also served as the director of the IU Soul Review. Tyron Cooper is also a composer, and he's written the scores for several films and documentaries. Since 2012, he's been nominated for six Emmy Awards, and he's won three. Cooper is currently an assistant professor in the Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies at Indiana University Bloomington, and he recently was appointed the director of IU's Archives of African American Music and Culture. Recently, Tyron Cooper sat down with a cultural archivist in his own right, WFIU's Mark Chilla, host of the program's Ether Game and Afterglow. Dr. Tyron Cooper, thank you so much, and welcome to Profiles. So I have your CV here. It's uh, one of the most extensive resumes that I've seen from a musician. So I guess, where do you find all the time to do all of this? Well, you know, the time, uh, you got to be very careful with the time Mm because it can get away. I'd like to say I don't really find the time, but, but you have to find the time. You have to kind of prioritize. I've always been the type of person. First of all, thanks for having me. Of course. I'm, I'm just I'm glad to be here. So I've always been the type of person uh, growing up with a, a house full of siblings. It was six of us, um, five boys and one girl. And my parents kept us very active with music and chores. And so we were always multitasking, but always also thinking about how to be focused in everything that we did. My father was a kind of taskmaster with making sure that we understood what our goals were with each task. When should they be done? How should they be done? So he really instilled in us a a real strong discipline for work, for ethics, and I just kind of carry that with me. And I also just try not to think about the number of projects that are on my plate. I'm just taking them one at a time Mm -hmm. and trying to do the best I can. Well, I want to start talking about the Archives of African-American Music mm-hmm. and Culture, which you've recently been appointed the director of back in January of 2018. So mm-hmm. it's been a little over a year now. How has this past year been as the director of the Archives? Well, I'm really grateful to follow in the footsteps of the founding director, uh, Dr. Portia Mosby, and the most recent immediate past director, Dr. Melanie Burnham, uh, two of my closest mentors. Uh, both actually were on my dissertation committee mm. as an ethnomusicologist. And so they left a strong foundation, a serious foundation in terms of the types of things that they collected in terms of their scholarship, their relationships that they had built over years since the early 90s when the archives were founded by Dr. Portia Mosby. I'm really walking and trying to fill some huge shoes and also trying to figure out how I can extend upon what they had done with the archives, capturing collections that tread upon the music industry and various aspects of the community where black music is situated. 
so many different genres from blues, rhythm and blues, gospel, jazz, soul, funk, and even to hip-hop and classical music as well. So it's a host of uh, genres that we hold at the archives. So it's kind of like I am in a candy store. It's an archival candy store. <laughs> and I get to see this uh, music and feel this music and experience this music. My goal as a director currently is to bring the archives alive so that the music, the collections are not just sitting in some black hole, but that we are actually performing these musics and we are talking about them, you know, bringing different artists, different uh, lecturers, scholars to campus to really engage this music in a more enlivened way. That's my goal, to mm-hmm. see the academy, the industry, and the community kind of converge upon black music in various ways. Well, let's take a step back. Let's talk a little bit about the archives. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it briefly when it was founded, what's the history behind mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. and then how did you get involved in well, it? Well, the, the archives was started really as a research focus by Portia Malsby, Dr. Portia Malsby, in the 80s, if you would. Officially, it was started in 1991, but it was started as a result of her early research in the music industry. And she had traveled all around the country gathering these interviews from different industry insiders she'd realized at a certain point that there was no kind of one-stop shop for where these oral histories, these materials were housed. They were all over the place. She Mm -hmm. found that there was materials in, say, for instance, in Japan, that folk were just distributing these materials in various ways all over the world, but they were not accessible to the community, nor were they accessible to scholars. And so she came up with the brilliant idea to formulate this new archives. And it was really founded on this idea that she was researching the music industry and had amassed all these materials. Mm -hmm. And she thought that, well, this is going somewhere. So in 1991 was the formal date, I would say, the year that the archives was founded. But it had been going on prior to then with her early research in the music industry. And since then, it has really expanded into over... At least uh, when I say a collection, you define that in various ways. But over 100 or maybe 25 collections, thousands of recordings, videos, various media formats and uh, papers, documents, memoirs, uh, contracts. And just imagine looking at contracts from, say, someone like Arizona Drains, who was an early gospel pioneer, and seeing some of her letters to the uh, record label asking for money to purchase a phonograph so that she can hear her records. Uh, She didn't have enough money, but she made all these recordings. And so, you know, so looking at materials where the voice of the people ring out, being able to assess their own handwriting, experiencing their consciousness as they were going through their creative moments and their business deals, if you would, their friendships, their families, the lives, you know. So we're looking at really preserving, promoting, and transmitting these histories of black folk and white folk that really contributed greatly to the black music continuum. So there is no archive like this anywhere else in the world? There are various archives on black music, but what is distinct about the Archives of African American Music and Culture here is that we carry the broad continuum That is, we carry numerous styles within the continuum of black music as opposed to an archive that does hip-hop or an archive Mm -hmm. that does gospel music, black gospel music. No, we are uh, really focused on trying to tell the broadest story possible and collect the broadest history possible 
that details black music. And it's right here on campus. Right, right? here on yeah. campus, on 10th and the Bypass in the mm-hmm. Smith Research Center. Okay. Yeah. We'll need to come check it out. Yeah. And you have different collections, religious music, popular music, mm-hmm. hip-hop, which I'm guessing is a fairly recent addition because if it started in 91, was mm-hmm. there much of a, a hip-hop collection when you started in 91? No, no. Uh, really, uh, because of the research that Portia Malsby had done, it was mainly a lot of industry executives. Uh, hmm. And also, we have a wonderful collection on black radio. I want to ask about that. Yeah, yeah what's in this that collection black goes radio collection? All the way back to the 40s, really almost to the present. We have, of course, radio air checks. We have interviews, disc jockeys. It's an extensive collection on black radio that you will not find anywhere else. Correct me if I'm wrong. I had a suspicion that a lot of radio stations, especially in like the 60s and the 70s, black radio stations also sort of served as recording studios for local artists. Is that true? I think. I'm not as knowledgeable about the mm-hmm. actual recording stations sure. and the record labels. But what I do know is that black artists recorded in some actually really unique spaces. Now, what they did do in black radio and a lot of radio stations, if you would, but mm-hmm. particularly in black radio, they had a lot of live concerts yeah. that went on, a lot of live performances. One of the other things about black radio is it was the media or the the news of our time. It dealt with what was happening in the community. I remember actually even growing up, my parents were gospel music promoters. We could actually walk a record or a cassette tape right into the radio station and say, play this. So black radio was communal. It was this type of communal vehicle that you actually had entree. You could actually touch the disc jockeys. They were actually community members. They were real, but they were icons in the community. They were the voice of the community. So they didn't just play records. They told us what was going on in the community. They told us who needed what in the community. They talked about all of the happenings, whether it be the secular or the sacred spaces, what was going on in the church, what church was having the big program, gospel music programs, but also where the parties were, who was in need in the community, who passed away in the community. So it was really the CNN, the MSNBC, the Fox (laughs) of our time. But also it gave us an understanding of what the swag was. These disc jockeys really articulated the voice and vernacular of the community. So we often followed them in the dialect, in the languages, in the way we addressed each other as soul brothers and Mm -hmm. soul sisters and so forth. So you had soul radio, you had soul food, you had soul music. And all of this, we followed that path through black radio. So it's not just a document of the music, but really the life and the culture and everything. It is. It's a political force as well. You know, how shall we think about certain issues? So it was that time for us to not only hear the current grooves, if you would, but understand the specific consciousness of the community. How are we rallying and what are we rallying around and social politically? So black radio has and I think it continues to be a significant, although, you know, we're into big business now. It still is a significant force in the community. So you have these air checks from all these stations at the archive. Mm-hmm. But the archive also has some publications associated with it and some mm-hmm. events, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our annual publication, Liner Notes, mm-hmm. which is a really cool thing where we actually, every year, we put out this magazine called Liner Notes, and it details everything that we've done throughout the year. So last year, of course, we you know brought in Boosie Collins. So you got Boosie Collins on the front of the magazine. But it also details our donors just to kind of let everyone know what collections did we garner for this particular year. 
What collections are we working on? What are some of the primary issues in archiving? What are some of the challenges? What are some of the successes? And so mm-hmm. it, it really gives you a fine-tuned, detailed assessment of what was happening at the archives for each particular year. But then there are also scholars who have come to the archives to do research for their publications. Uh, of course, Portia Mosby and Melanie Burnham's book, African American Music and Introduction, uh, I think was the volume one, was kind of birthed out of this archives. Hmm. Uh, you did a lot of research from a lot of our collections that came out of the archives. There have been so many books. Uh, there was a new book that just came out, I think, around 2000 and maybe 11 or 13 about Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace recording. And you know there's, oh, a, yeah. there's a new film documentary yeah, exactly, on that yeah. particular mm-hmm. recording. And so that book details that. And then the scholar came and did some research really? uh, at the archives. So there are uh, we just had a, a scholar from, uh, I think it was France, doing some research on soul music just recently. So people come from all over the world to research the materials at the archives to develop their particular publications. That's excellent. So what are your hopes for the future of the archive? My hopes for the future is really to expand upon this connection between the academy and the community and the industry. I think these are three entities that don't often come together on common grounds, you know, Mm -hmm. so the academy can often articulate an idea about a certain topic that is not as identifiable in the community, if you Mm -hmm. would. So how do we bring these entities together? What are the ideas and how does this music shift? How is it defined? What are the meanings that are applied to black music when it becomes a commodity? We're looking at those types of discussions within the industry. And how does the community view their expressions once they are commoditized, Mm -hmm. once they become this mainstream even globalized expression. We're looking at bringing those entities together to converge upon black music in various ways to deal with the plight of black music, the creative aspect, the business aspect, and the cultural dimension of black music. But also, I also envision us going into a more diasporic perspective in black music, looking at manifestations of black music around the world, in the Caribbean, uh, in South America, and even on the African continent. What does black music look like? What is the meaning? How are people articulating this expression that we call black music? How is it transmitted or translated in these different global or diasporic spaces? You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Tyron Cooper, director of IU's Archives of African American Music and Culture. He's speaking with Mark Chilla. Well, as someone who studies the history of black music, both as an historian and a performer and an archivist, what are some of the threads that run through it from well, around I mean, the world, really? When you think about the diaspora, you've got to understand it from an African worldview that there's this theme or sensibility in terms of how black folk have viewed the world, have engaged the world, around the world, on their own terms. Of course, there is tons of diversity in that, but there is this kind of uniqueness about how black folk engage. And you really find that in the music, in the rhythms, in the sense of uh, communal creativity. There are certain aspects of black music that we can identify around the world that really galvanized black folk in this creative moment. 
in the sense of how they create, why they create the sensibilities around their creative output. And we can trace all of that really back to the homeland of Africa. Hmm. And so when we think about black music in the United States, when we think about black music in the Caribbean islands, when you think about black music in South America, and black music is also in Asia, mm-hmm. and you know, it's yeah. all over the world. And so when you think about what black music is and you start assessing it from an African worldview and a sense of the aesthetic sensibilities that are shaped by this African worldview, then you can begin to see the links and understand how black people create, but also why they create the way they do based on these kind of social conditions that they engage throughout various historical moments. And you start to realize, wait, there are some unique threads, some very distinct threads that speak to what it means to express a certain blackness in a particular soundscape mm-hmm. or a certain blackness in that consciousness that embodies the soundscape. Those are the types of things that we often mull over and trying to understand even more in depth what black music is. And it is different. It's not a monolithic construct. Mm-hmm. There is some definite diversity within black music. There are also some unique sensibilities that really I would say almost the whole of the diaspora really shares. Mm-hmm. How does that reflect in your own music that you make? Well, I am a product of so many different traits or links within this diaspora. Mm -hmm. Uh, Me being from Florida, I mean, I've heard so many different expressions within the diaspora. Mm -hmm. We've had folk that have come from uh, Haiti, Cuba, Afro-Cubans down in Florida. It's just so many different cultural expressions in Florida that I grew up actually experiencing and didn't know Jamaica. In my backyard, there were Jamaicans playing dub (laughs) on every Friday and Saturday night, just booming dub, Mm -hmm. you know. Then we had, you know, Haitians, you know, doing their thing. And then we had, on the other side of my house, we had Puerto Ricans, and they would bring us beans and rice and (laughs) different types of meat. Mm -hmm. So we were experiencing a whole lot of cultural expressions, food ways, uh, music and dances and languages. And all this really became a part of who I am as an African-American. Again, we're not monolithic. So, yes, I do funk. Yes, I do soul. Mm -hmm. But I I also like Wagner. You know, I I also, I like Brazilian music. I guess my space is the world Mm -hmm. creatively. But I operate from this standpoint, again, of this kind of viewpoint of blackness based on the environment that I came from, based on the conditions that I've engaged from childhood until adulthood and and trying to see the world not only through this black lens, but that is the core lens that I see the world. And it really dictates my sensibility. So two eighth notes, they have to swing for (laughs) several reasons. It's how I think about we take something and we're able to, there's this thing that says uh, uh, hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick, taking very little and meeting that goal, hitting that focus. I've grown up using what I had, even though it might have been unorthodox, playing instruments in unorthodox ways, mm-hmm. uh, like Louis Armstrong on trumpet. Mm-hmm. The way he approaches the trumpet is, is totally unorthodox. You see black artists who will take maybe instruments that are historically associated with classical music. Mm-hmm old blues cats who would take the guitar and and, and it's a string instrument, but you playing it like a drum, you're beating the instrument. It's a percussive instrument. James Brown, 
the way he dealt with the band. Yeah. The whole band was a percussion yeah, exactly. yeah. instrument. His voice, everybody articulated the drum. Mm-hmm. These are African concepts, right? And so I bring all of those types of ideas and flavors into my music, regardless of what I'm playing, even if I'm playing classical music, if I'm doing jazz, whatever I'm playing, folk music, those African sensibilities, they're going to impact upon what I do creatively. What challenges do you think they're going to face in the coming years, especially as you think about archiving in this increasingly digital world? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's a huge challenge. The idea of digitizing your material to become accessible. There are legal challenges because of copyright laws and certain legalities that you Mm -hmm. have to really kind of watch out for. It's like a minefield, if you would, trying to understand the legalities of archiving Archives are part of really every aspect of what we do. Everybody, if you think about it, we all are archivists. Mm-hmm. You got things in your closet. <laughs> People have things in the trunks of your car. You might not think it's important. These paper trails, they tell the story of who we are, right? But nobody knows what an archive is. So one of the big challenges is How do we educate people on what we do as an archives? Because really, people tend to think of an archives as this relic from the past or this museum type space Mm -hmm. that you just take these papers and you throw them in the dungeon and nobody ever checks them out. Nobody ever engages them. So my goal is is really we've kind of developed this mission, you know, bringing our collections alive at the archives. And so one of the biggest challenges is just that. How do we educate people on what the archives is, what we do, how we are significant as an archives Mm -hmm. in terms of our holdings and how you might experience these materials in a myriad of ways Mm -hmm. through guest speakers, through live performances. You can come to the archives and put your hands on these materials. Mm -hmm. People just don't know that. And so a large part of our goal and our challenges is how do we educate people? How do we get the word out? The digitization process is huge. We're actually engaged in that process with the university initiative here at IU with digitizing all of our materials as much as we can. So there are a host of challenges. But the other question I have is, especially with current hip-hop music, where so much of it is created digitally. I mean, you Mm -hmm. think of the recent trend of, like, SoundCloud rappers Mm -hmm. making music on their computer and just releasing it on their own without relying on the usual distribution methods. I mean, Chance the Rapper is one of the biggest albums from the last five years, completely done as a streaming album. How do you view the future of archiving when so much of it sort of exists not really in the physical realm? I think in this digital space, what I can say about that, that the archives allow one to weed through the clutter of so much music that's put out now, so much music that is accessible. People are putting out music every day, but it's hard to find. Mm -hmm. The archives also bring meaning and description, because everything is being digitized, not just the new music. Yeah. So now you think about the blues and how the blues is actually impacting upon hip-hop. The archives is that space where you can trace hip-hop to the blues or trace hip-hop to jazz, and it gives you this type of narrative for this digitized space. Not just necessarily order, but meaning. Why are these sounds, these creative products important? not only to the African-American community, but to the whole of this kind of global sound, because black music is a globalized expression at this point. Mm -hmm. And so 
I think in this digital realm, yes, it brings order, but it also brings meaning. I want to talk a lot about your personal music history mm. a little more. We touched on this a bit, but I want to go into it and find out a little more about you. So you're a guitarist and mm. a singer by trade. Mm. When I was reading a little bit about you, I found that one of your first musical experiences was the Cooper Singers, <laughs> a family gospel group. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that. So one Easter, <laughs> literally one Easter, and I can't, I wish I could remember how old I was. I might have been about four or five years old. My family sang a song for Easter and really wasn't any reason to rhyme. My mom has always been a singer, a really good singer. In fact, her father, she grew up in South Carolina. Her father would not allow her to sing secular music. She grew up at a time when James Brown and all of the greats were going to the Apollo. And she had an opportunity. Her teachers were going to send her to the Apollo, but her father wouldn't allow that. But she always sang, so she sang church music, gospel yeah. music, and they instilled that in us. So that one Easter morning, she just decided that the whole family would sing a song. And from that particular morning until even now, we still sing together when we get together, when I go home oftentimes, people started calling on us after that Easter morning to participate in what we call gospel programs. That was my earliest experience, along with the Church of God in Christ, which was a Pentecostal denomination in the black church. Those were my two earliest experiences with music. Gospel music was my entree. Uh, when I say gospel music, I should also say the blues because that's what we were playing. We were playing the blues in the church. Hmm. We were playing soul music in the church. In fact, we had this very same instrumentation as a soul band. We had the Fender bass. We had the drum set. We had the the Stratocaster, Fender Stratocaster guitars. You know, These were secular, popular music instruments that mm -hmm. we, the band that I grew up listening to in the church, these guys were like my father's age. My father was also a guitarist as well is the guitars. They were playing Earth, Wind & Fire grooves. They were playing Ohio Players grooves in the church. But they just switched the words yeah, around. <laughs> the lyrics became, you know, we dancing for Jesus now, right? You know, So so the Cooper singers were birthed out of that. Yeah. From the time I was probably four years old, I think my first instrument was the drum set. And then I became like a co-leader of the group when I would lead the songs and along with my mom and my sister. Then I switched to guitar and bass. And it was just in the church that I grew up in, the denomination, you played whatever instrument was needed, needed yeah. at any given time. Yeah. So if the drummer was not there, then you're the drummer for that Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it was early on with the Cooper Singers. So we began to tour, you know, of course, the whole state of Florida, but the like southeast coast of the United States, Georgia, South mm -hmm. Carolina, even parts of Alabama. And we did this from four or five years old to high school, to the time I left for college. Wow. Yeah, and uh, we became pretty good at yeah. it. You know, <laughs> I, we, we were really blessed. And, I, and the good thing about it is, you know, with my parents having five boys and one girl, is it kept us out of trouble. Mm -hmm. They use it as a vehicle to accomplish so many things. Of course, the music taught us discipline. Because we had to practice. Yeah. We, we had to, you know, there were certain things we knew we had to nail. You know, we had to get certain parts right. So you had to practice. You had to put the time in. Yeah. So we learned early on, if you want to be good at something, put the time in to make that happen. 
but it also preoccupied us from being in the streets, you know, and doing some of the things that some of our friends, you know, kind of got into early on. It really was a vehicle for just maintaining our ethics and, you know, could you imagine raising five boys who mm-hmm. turn into teenagers? And and my parents, they did an excellent job with instilling in us those, uh, I would say, just character, good character, mm-hmm. character of work. What does it mean to work? It's a good thing to work. Yeah. <laughs> and so that experience didn't just shape you musically, but shaped your life. It your shaped world. my life. It yeah. shaped my thoughts. It shaped my faith. Mm-hmm. I'm a Christian, and I got that early on. And not just that I'm a Christian, but it also taught me how to operate in the world as a Christian, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, how to deal with all types of people. We dealt with so many different types of people, some who believed what we believed, some who didn't. How do you find the common ground? The common ground is the humanity Mm -hmm. of people, to love people. So it taught us how to love. It taught us how to have compassion. I remember when my parents, because they were gospel promoters, they were bringing these you know, different national gospel artists to do these big shows in our town. And, you know, the tickets might have been, who knows, I think maybe 3 to $5 to get in mm-hmm. at the most. Well, there were people who would come to the door and they would tell my parents, well, I just don't have it. And they would let them in. My parents would actually take the loss to share the music, yeah. to share the experience. And, and that, that gave me compassion for people who do not have what I had, I realized, and, and we didn't grow up rich. I wasn't, we weren't rich. My mom, I mean, they, when they would bring these people in, she tells me this story. They would work to save the money. They would already have the money before the artist came in. So whatever they made at the door was just icing on the cake, if you would. So it wasn't that they had all of this money. It was just that she had an idea and any artist she would envision that she wanted to see, she would save the money and she would bring them in. So those are the type of promoters that they were. It wasn't Mm -hmm. this big entourage, wasn't these major co-sponsors that were, you know, with them. They just did it on their own. They Mm -hmm. were entrepreneurial in their thinking, and they had this kind of I-can-do attitude. And they gave that to us. It was like ingrained that in our DNA, and they also ingrained the compassion. So I saw my parents early on have compassion for people who did not have what maybe they wanted to have, but, mm-hmm. but they let them in. They let them in. So that compassion was a big thing. I can remember my mom asking me to share clothes with some of my friends who didn't have shoes mm-hmm. and then literally take my shoes off. And I didn't understand it at that time, but it makes 150% sense mm-hmm. now. You know, like, yeah, you help people when they're in need. That doesn't have anything to do with what you believe. It's just, this is your humanity. This is another human being. You help, you you know? So so that group, the Cooper Singers, I mean, if anything, that was my teaching ground. That was my space for understanding what being a sound human is, what care is, what does compassion look like, what does love look like, and I carry that with me. So everything I do, I do it with passion and compassion and love and joy and because you know anybody could call somebody else so i'm just happy to be here i'm thankful yeah <laughs> you know so growing up as a professional musician as a kid did you always know that you wanted to continue pursuing music after that yeah as a kid this, you know what i'm doing now is what i did as a kid <laughs> that's not many people's experience <laughs> <laughs> no and let me tell you what i mean by that 
I had my own play space on the side of our house in Lake Worth, Florida, growing up. And I had imaginary friends. And I grew up conducting choirs and orchestras, imaginary orchestras and choirs. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I didn't know, I didn't know what an oboe was. I didn't know what a flute was. I didn't know what strings were, but I saw all of these instruments. They were my friends. And every day after school, I would be on the side of my house and I was eight, nine, ten years old. I mean, this took place up until probably I was early teenager. <laughs> I'm just on the side of my house yeah. and I would pick up sticks and the sticks would be my guitars or I would make instruments out of buckets and I would just have my entire imaginary band playing with me. And I heard all of the sounds. These were my friends. My mom tells a story that there was a window on the side of the house and I used to play right outside of that window, mm-hmm. you know, on the side of the house. And she would often peek out the window and she said, that's my son again. I don't know who he's talking to out there. <laughs> he's talking to somebody. Yeah. So what I'm doing now when I, you know, lead ensembles or I do creative works, it's just an extension of those imaginary friends that I had grown up with, that I'd already been talking to for years and years, I'd always been interacting with and creating with. These were my imaginary friends, and so it it all makes sense to me now. So people ask me, well, how do you do all that stuff? I was doing all of this stuff (laughs) when I was a kid and didn't know it. So I'm really literally getting paid and have a career based on my playtime. That's great. (laughs) Yeah, that's excellent. musician and ethnomusicologist Tyron Cooper. In conversation with Mark Chilla. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Guitar is your main instrument. Yeah. Uh, when did you pick up the guitar? I picked up the guitar. <laughs> this is a funny story. So I picked up the guitar probably around maybe nine or ten as I said, my father was a guitarist, and mm-hmm. he would leave to go to work every day, and he would say, don't touch my guitar. <laughs> I um, can see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why he did this. He would leave the guitar in his closet, and he would show me where the guitar was, and he'd mm-hmm. say, don't touch it. All right, okay, Dad. I got you. <laughs> so he would leave, and, of course, here I am playing again with my imaginary friends. So I used to go in their room, go in that closet, And there was a mirror on the closet door, and I would stand in front of that mirror, and I would play concerts to myself. And I'm playing a concert. Yeah. Well, one day I got so excited, I turned and broke the neck of the guitar. Oh, no. (laughs) And I put it back in the closet. And my father came home. He saw the guitar, and he knew it was me. And he's like, I asked you not to touch my guitar, but you did. He didn't spank me, though. I think it was that next Christmas they bought us instruments, a guitar, bass, hmm. and a drum set. That was the year, around eight or nine years old, I yeah. started playing guitar. I was determined, I know you said not to touch this guitar, but I need to touch this guitar. <laughs> I just need it, right? And he saw that. And he, he saw decided, that, yeah. To, and so my, par- my parents were yeah. really, really understood who we were. They were able to really kind of read us, if you would, mm-hmm. to discern, okay, this child is really interested in this thing. Let's see how far this is going to go. And I never put it down. I never put the guitar down. It was just one of my primary instruments to this day. 
I think I fell in love with it because I watched him play and he seemed to get so much joy out of it that mm-hmm. he could sit down on a chair by himself in a room and he could just riff on the guitar. And I just thought that was just amazing. And I grew up around it. All of the guys my dad's age, it seems like in our church, they played some type of instrument and most of them played the guitar. Yeah. And it just seemed to be the thing to do. So then you continue to study music. You attend college Mm -hmm. at Bethune-Cookman University in Florida, Mm -hmm. a historically black university. Mm -hmm. Did you always know that you wanted to attend one of the HBCUs, historically black college and universities? No. In 1989, I was 17 years old, and my high school guidance counselor by the name of Mrs. Debbie Range, she Mm -hmm. told me to go see a choir in concert. This is my senior year. It was then the Bethune-Cookman College. It wasn't the mm-hmm. university then. The Bethune-Cookman College Concert Chorale under the direction of Dr. Rebecca Walker Steele. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, of course, I was amazed with the performance. I'd never heard a choir do from Bach to gospel. That was an extensive range of expressions that they had performed. But another thing that really amazed me was this guitarist in the choir by the name of Eric Carter. And Eric had what was called a PV double neck guitar <laughs> six strings on the bottom and 12 strings on the top wow what amazed me about this guitar was about a year prior to that my parents had purchased that same guitar for me and i was so naive i thought i was the only one in the world with that guitar <laughs> right so i went to eric and i said yeah after this was after the concert mm-hmm. and i was like hey man you know i I got that same axe, man. You know, I'm, you know, man. You, you know, we, we, me and you are cool. We like yeah. we brothers, man. Yeah. And he looked at me like, yeah, whatever, right? <laughs> you know. And it just so happened that Dr. Mm-hmm. Steele heard the conversation. She came over and told Eric to allow me to play the guitar. Yeah. She wanted to hear me play, and so the band struck up a song. It was called "I'll Tell It." It was by the New Jersey Mass Choir, mm-hmm. and I played along with them by ear. When we got through playing the song, Dr. Steele says to me, okay, so you have a full scholarship. Come to Bethune-Cookman, be there in August. And that's how my college career got started. That's excellent. I, I had no intentions of going to college. I thought that when I got out of high school, I was actually going to go on the road and play with some gospel artists, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these were quartet, black quartet gospel artists, you know, uh, Willie Neal Johnson and the gospel keynotes and the Jackson Southern Nairs. You know, I just want, these were my dream artists during, during that time. I thought, well, I could get on with them if I, you know, that was my goal, to do that on the weekends and to find a day job, yeah. you know, maybe, you know, I, but I didn't, I didn't have any ambitions of going to college. I didn't know what that was at that time, but that experience really changed my life. I think meeting Dr. Rebecca Walker Steele at Bethune-Cookman College, she changed my life. Before then, I could not read music. Really? No. Wow. I learned to really read music in undergrad, in college. She taught me how to read choral scores, and she would allow me to teach a certain section. Maybe, okay, so take the tenors on this section of this piece, and you take them in a sectional, and you teach them there. And then she would just continue to add sections. So by the end, she would just throw a score down and say, teach this in an hour, and I'll be back. And she just, she trusted me. The yeah. best thing you can have from anybody is trust. Yeah. And she trusted me with her ensemble, and she instilled all of this musical knowledge. She actually, Dr. Steele had been teaching in higher ed since 1946. She actually recently passed. She was mm-hmm. 93 years old, and I was really blessed to serve as the director of the music for her 
homegoing celebration. It was like over a 200 voice choir and full instrumental section. We all got around and we honored her at her funeral. But she's instilled a lot in me. I studied voice with her. She allowed me to be over her instrumental section and just eventually take over the entire choir. And after graduating, she hired me. When I finished my master's degree at IU mm -hmm. in jazz studies, I went back to Bethune-Cookman and served as her assistant choral director. So that was my first college job, assistant choral director and uh, jazz band instructor and uh, applied guitar instructor. So she started me in this higher ed environment, mm -hmm. and I'm so grateful to her mm -hmm. to this day. After you leave Bethune-Cookman, you go to IU and you get a master's mm -hmm. in jazz studies on guitar. You head back to Bethune-Cookman briefly, but then you're back in Indiana University mm -hmm. as the uh, director of the IU Soul Review yeah. shortly after that. How did you learn about this ensemble? Um, was this kind of like your dream job at this point? Well, interestingly, uh, when I was here studying for my master's degree, my assistantship was to be an assistant instructor, or AI is what we call mm -hmm. them, for uh, the African-American Choral Ensemble under the direction of Dr. James Mumford mm -hmm. at that time. And, of course, the Soul Review, the African-American Choral Ensemble, and the African-American Dance Company are all three ensembles under the larger entity of the African-American Arts Institute. So I got a chance to rub shoulders with a lot of the cats in the Soul Review. I was actually really good friends with the then Soul Review director, Dr. William Banfield. I remember when I first met him, this was probably in 1995, because mm -hmm. I had done a summer program just to back up a little bit. I participated in a summer program. I think it was called the CIC Fellowships Program, mm -hmm. where they brought a series of underrepresented undergrads to campus to complete their senior thesis projects. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote my <laughs> senior thesis paper for Bethune-Cookman by using the resources at IU during that summer. During that summer, I had met Dr. William Banfield, who was the director of the Soul Review, and he really took me under his wing. And then I remember him telling me, yeah, you're going to be next Soul Review director. And I was like, what's that? That's how I kind of got involved with understanding what the Soul Review was and understanding the larger mission of the African-American Arts Institute being AI for the Choral Ensemble and being close to William Banfield and so forth. And so as a result of, I guess, my work as an AI Dr. Charles Sykes, who is the executive director of the African-American Arts Institute, he called me one evening when I was in Florida teaching at Bethune-Cookman College, asked me to come up and interview for the job. My thought was that it would be a great opportunity to come back up and also work on my doctoral degree while I was working as the Soul Review director. So I came up and interviewed for the job. And and I got the job. Mm -hmm. So I was really blessed that he would even think of me. It was so many great students, especially during the time when I was in school. I mean, just, everybody was so versatile and so charismatic in the way that they approached people and music. And it was a great time in the African-American Arts Institute. And they're still thriving even to this day. Yeah. I'm really grateful that he would even think to call me because that now that is actually what started my trajectory here at IU. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You're the director of this ensemble for several years at starting then in, what was that, 1999? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your approach to working with the IU Soul Review, and how does it differ from you playing with your imaginary friends in the backyard or working with your family? Yeah. Artistically, it's still playtime for me, mm -hmm. right? 
all music is just playtime for me. I'm just, you know, I, I would love to give you some type of theoretical, you know, pie in the sky type of philosophical situation, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm really having fun. Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoy when I create. When you want to see me happy, come into my creative space. Mm-hmm. It's intense, and I know it's intense because I'm trying to give it all I got. This is the type of thing that I express to my students Give it all you got. Leave it all on the stage so you don't have any regrets when you get off the stage. You shouldn't have any regrets of, well, if I just had practiced a little bit more, if I had just thought about this music, if I had envisioned myself on the stage before I got on the stage. No, I want you to give me all you got. And then I want you to translate that sense of discipline, that sense of withedness to every aspect of your life. We've had students that have graduated from IU who have been in the Soul Review, who have gone on to do major things in the entertainment industry, but also in so many different walks of life, Mm -hmm. educators, lawyers, doctors. And they've all worked on high levels because of this kind of discipline that we instilled in them. But it's also a community. The IU Soul Review for me was a space where students could come and identify themselves, particularly African-American students. And it's not just for African-American students, but it operates on this African-American performance framework. So you got to get in on this black space, right? And you got to respect this black space, Mm -hmm. this space that operates on black creativity. And once you gain that respect for it, then you can come in on this and identify yourself within this because everybody knows what it means to love, to feel sorrow, Groove is infectious. So you can get those artistic characteristics at play, but then you develop your humanity in the IU Soul Review. You develop lifelong connections. Many of the students who graduated, they help each other. They work together in the industry. They assist each other in life. So we have developed a strong and unique community in the IU Soul Review. So my goal as a director was to alert the students to the strength of community. And we did it by providing this vehicle of creativity, something that is that common ground that they can work out these issues that will get them to a deeper understanding of the worth of community. And then around the same time, you also form Camp Soul. Oh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about this project. Camp Soul. Soul, S-O-U-L is an acronym, uh, Students Obtaining Unique, and I put musical levels, Mm -hmm. right? I envisioned Camp Soul for young people, high school students, ninth through 12th graders, who had similar experiences that I had in high school. If it were not for Miss Debbie Range, I would not have gone to college because I would not have known to go see the Bethune-Cookman Concert Chorale. I wanted to alert students about higher ed who might not have had the opportunity to know that there's an opportunity there for them. And I did it through the arts specifically African-American arts. So we study. It's a one-week intensive program. We brought the students here on the campus on a Sunday afternoon, check them into the dormitories, and Monday morning, actually it was Sunday night, we started working and just instilling in them these ideas. We started working. Of course, they had music that they had to learn from Negro spirituals to hip-hop, so the full terrain of black music Mm. from the 18th century to the present. And then we would introduce them to certain professors, students, administrators on the campus who would tell them and talk to them about 
what it means to go to college. What are the types of requirements that you should be conscious of? You know, what types of grades should you be getting? How do you fill out an application? What do you need to get into this environment and to do well in this environment? Mm-hmm. What is that experience like? So they came and they stayed here for one week on the campus. At the end of the week, which is that following Friday, they did a culminating performance. And I tell you, those students were amazing. Mm. You know, I've learned don't ever tell a child what they cannot do. Only tell them what you want them to do and that what you want them to do has to go far beyond what you see them doing currently. So you envision them in the future versus the present. And if you don't tell them that they can't do it, they'll rise to the occasion. And that's what they did every year. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Tyron Cooper, guitarist, vocalist, arranger, music director, and assistant professor of African American and African Diaspora Studies at Indiana University Bloomington. He's speaking with Mark Chilla. In addition to IU Soul Review and Camp Soul, you're also still performing a lot, you know, yeah. professionally around the state of Indiana and elsewhere. At some point, you start working with Angela Brown, who's an an opera singer uh, from Indianapolis, also studied at the Jacobs School of Music. How did the two of you meet? Angela and I met actually when I was the AI for Choral Ensemble. She was in the Choral Ensemble. Just huge and beautiful personality, a great humanitarian. And we really hit it off. She She was a big sister to us. Even then, as a graduate student, Angela was like leaps and bounds ahead of all of us, you know, in terms of her world experiences Mm -hmm. and her ability to think beyond our educational space. And she always thought global. She was always this big personality in the room, big voice, huge, beautiful voice, as you know. Oh, yeah. And so we started working together. uh, I'm I'm trying to think when we first started working together, because I know we I used to, you know, just melt when she would sing solos in the choir back in those days. And you were her guitarist for a while? Yeah, uh, yeah I was her guitarist for several years. Mm-hmm. We worked together. We did a project together, Mosaic, and I can't remember the actual year we did mm-hmm. that project, but it was a project of Negro Spirituals, and we recorded it down in Kentucky. And it was a major thing for me to do that, because Angela was really just taking off in her career and had become very notable for the things that she had done, you know, uh, Metropolitan Opera House. And I mean, just so many huge spaces that Mm -hmm. her name began to get out there. And and it was a joy to record and work with her. I learned just a myriad of lessons working with Angela. One is how to be unselfish as a musician, because I was her accompanist. It's a difference. (laughs) You know, I wasn't the featured artist, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you follow? How do you follow in a way that it enhances the performance as opposed to taking away, as opposed to you becoming the limelight. And she gave me my spaces, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because as an artist, you want that space to create. You want that freedom to create. She taught me by working with her how to do it in a way that propels her as a featured artist, Mm -hmm. while at the same time being fulfilled in myself, in my role. And so maybe one day we'll do some more work. I'm always excited. You know, we got together for a brief moment, um, about a year and a half ago, she actually stopped by my house. Oh, that's nice. And, yeah. you know, visited me. So we, we mm-hmm. were talking about, you know, the possibilities of doing some projects. So we'll see what, you know, time will tell. Mm-hmm. Time will tell. 
So somewhere along the way, you get involved in film scoring. Yeah. How did you get involved in making film music? And how is your approach to film music different than all the other musical experiences oh, you've had? Man. Film scoring came as a surprise to me and everybody that knows me. <laughs> right. What happened was I was actually performing with Angela Brown at the Madam Walker Theater. And PBS was doing a documentary on her. I didn't know that the performance was for a documentary. I thought it was just a live performance. So that night of the performance, I came into the knowledge that this was actually a documentary. And so my management and her management began to talk. And of course, PBS's management began to talk. And out of that talk came the idea that, of course, my images can be used in this documentary and all that. And that was all good. But also, hey, well, let's see if we could create something around my scholarship and creativity. And out of that came a program called Musical Threads, Expressions of a People, which mm -hmm. is, it still airs on PBS. And that was me and Marietta Simpson, Professor Marietta Simpson, who's on voice faculty here at IU. We kind of chronicled in song different expressions in black music. After I finished that work with Marietta, the producers at PBS approached me and asked me, could I write a theme song for, at that time, it was called Open Door, and I think it was China in America. So it's looking at how Chinese people operate in the heartland of America. Mm -hmm. So they wanted a theme song that married these two communities. And by then, I had already began to think as an ethnomusicologist to understand the cultural nuances of a people and understanding how to go about formulating these expressions on the terms of the community. And so I was able to produce this theme song for that particular show. Don't quote me on this. I think that might have been my first Emmy nomination. And after that, they just kept calling. Yeah. And I've been working with PBS, shoot, I, I guess it was since maybe around 2008 or nine or something. Mm -hmm. It's about 10 years now. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while. And you've and won three Emmy Awards. Is that correct? Yep. I've been nominated, nominated for six Emmy Awards and I've won three in I never did it for the Emmys. I just said, again, I enjoyed making music. Making music. Yeah. This was another opportunity to make music in a different space. Because, mm -hmm. you know, constructing film scores is totally And even constructing scores for documentary films is totally different from featured films that mm -hmm. you see. You know, it's totally It's not Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> right. So understanding the functionality of music in film, how music drives film or how music can take away from the film, mm -hmm. you know? So you got to understand the nuances and what sounds actually complement what's going on in the visual sense. It was a whole new training ground for me. But again, I heard all of these sounds in my playtime. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So here I am again, just trying to channel those sounds and, and who I am as a scholar. Film scoring also, it really requires a high level of scholarship. So what I do as a film score in terms of the process is really not much different from writing an article. Mm -hmm. I still do archival research, ethnographic research, because you want to understand the community or the person, the characters, if you would, that are mm -hmm. highlighted in the film. You've got to dig deep, and that requires a lot of research. The outcome is different. My outcome is a creative product as opposed to traditional scholarship, which is a publication which I do both, but the process is very similar. Your research is on black gospel music mm -hmm. and black popular music. So much of your 
past experience probably informed your research. Of course, absolutely. Yeah. When I was in the PhD program, I was actually riding in a car with Dr. Melanie Burnham. I was try- I'd gotten to the end of my coursework and it's kind of still trying to figure out what am I going to write mm-hmm. about? I had all of these interests. I started out with this one concept, this abstract concept, this looking at groove concepts in black music, and it was a little too abstract, too broad and abstract. So we were riding in, in the car coming back from the Society for Ethnomusicology conference, and I think we were in Ohio that year. And uh, she and I started talking, and I was telling her about my experiences because at that time I was doing a lot of live recording sessions with different a national artist in the gospel music industry. And so she encouraged me. She said, well, wait a minute. That's your topic. You know about that. You have access to that community. Mm-hmm. You can tell that story as a scholar. You can unpack these nuances of creativity and meaning in this community. And so that's how I got to understand, you know, as a scholar, I could actually write about this and, and research this. And, and the ethnomusicology is such a great discipline because you really can discover self in this discipline. Mm-hmm. And so she showed me that it's okay to study one's environment and in an objective way through the right uh, theoretical and methodology, you can get it done. So I started thinking, what would it be to dig deeper into not necessarily just my musicianship, my musicality, but my scholarship and how more meaningful my service might be to dig into the more scholarly side of what I was doing in the creative realm. And so I had spoken with Dr. Portia Mosby and Mm -hmm. Dr. Melanie Burnham about that, and they encouraged me. Dr. William Wiggins was the liaison for the Ford Fellowship, and so he told me to put in an application for the Ford Fellowship, and I actually got a Ford Fellowship. Mm -hmm. It really does take a village. So when you see me, what you should see actually is an entire village of people walking with me and holding me up and encouraging me and even chastising me when I need it to be the best I can. Well, Dr. Tyron Cooper, thank you so much for joining me today here on Profiles. Thank you so much for having me. I am so grateful. Thank you. Tyron Cooper. Composer, performer, scholar, and director of Indiana University's Archives of African American Music and Culture. He's been speaking with WFIU's Mark Chilla. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.